We're in the book of Galatians today, and we are going to read 11 of chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 11, through the end of the chapter, all the time we'll be teaching on 15 through 21. Galatians 2, 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I've once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Let's pray. Father. We pray that your word would go forth with power today because it is your word, the word of the living God. Make us hungry and expectant today as we hear the word preached, expecting to receive good things from the hand of the living God, our Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Toward the very end of a Christian wedding, right after the officiant pronounces the couple husband and wife and gives the husband permission to kiss his beloved bride for all to behold, he typically concludes by citing one particular command of Jesus, which everyone in the room that day is accountable to heed. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. That marriage is a sacred union created by God. And both the bride and the groom, along with all of their family and friends, bear a sacred responsibility to nurture and to protect that union that God has created. But there is another union spoken of in the Bible that works exactly the opposite way. It is a union that God commands us to destroy and never to rebuild in any manner whatsoever. In effect, it is a divorce commanded by God. 
And the sacredness of that divorce is as great in the eyes of God as the sacredness of the blessed union that He creates in the divine institution of marriage. I'm talking about the divorce that God commands between man's way to make himself righteous and God's way to make man righteous. The divorce between law-keeping and Christ-trusting. The first of those, law-keeping, is a denial of God's grace. A denial that makes the very crucifixion of Christ unnecessary, as Paul will say in this passage. It makes it a tragedy instead of a victory. The second, Christ-trusting, is a lifelong celebration of God's grace. I want to show you where we're going this morning. We're going to look at three main points that Paul brings out in these, in verses 15 to 21, and then a concluding declaration. My title for the message is What God Has Separated, Let No Man Join Together. First, how the transgressor becomes righteous in verses 15 and 16. And the way that happens is through the divorcing of law-keeping from, from Christ-trusting. Secondly, how the righteous becomes a transgressor. And that is when one who has been made righteous goes after law-keeping. Finally, how the righteous lives righteously. And I put ditto point one <laughs> for that one. We'll talk about that. And then finally, the conclusion. Paul declares, I will not cancel out the grace of God. First, how the transgressor becomes righteous. Well, first, actually, let me, let me lay a little bit of groundwork on context. Um, this passage, verses 15 to 21, actually continues the rebuke by Paul against Peter that started in verse 11. And that whole rebuke in the second half of chapter 2 is just a parenthesis to support Paul's bigger rebuke against the Galatian Christians that started way back in chapter 1, verse 6. Paul's going to get back directly to that rebuke against the Galatians in the next chapter, chapter 3. The last section that we looked at, verses 11 to 14, Paul exposed Peter's hypocrisy publicly in very practical terms. Peter had contradicted his own beliefs and his own message by his actions. And that had the effect of changing Peter's message in the ears and the eyes of those who were paying attention to what he was doing. The rest of Paul's words to Peter here in verses 15 to 21 lay out Paul's theological rebuke on which that practical accusation of hypocrisy is based. But the theology that Paul presents in these verses turns out to be exceedingly practical as well. In verses 15 and 16, Paul explains how a transgressor, a sinner, becomes righteous. But first, he blows a hole in the popular categories by which people in his day identified who the sinners were and who the righteous people were. In verse 15, he says to Peter, 
we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. And I believe, by the way, that Paul, when he says we, he means Peter, you and me. We are Jews by nature and not Gentile sinners. To the Jews of Paul's day, there were two big categories of humanity, Jews and Gentiles. And within the category of Gentiles, there were two categories. Sinners, those who knew nothing about the one true God, they were pagans, they might be, they might be, uh, worshiping, uh, Artemis, or they might be worshiping the, the gods of Greece and Rome, but they were pagans. And the other category was the proselyte, the Gentile who had converted to Judaism. The only way a Gentile, in the eyes of a Jew, could stop being a sinner was to become a Jew by faith and practice. Even though he could never be a Jew by blood, there were always two two, uh, statuses. Paul is employing a familiar terminology here, Jews and sinners. But he's not employing it because he agrees with it. Paul refers to man's category so he can blow them away and replace them with God's categories. When it comes to how God sees us before we come to faith in Jesus Christ, there is only one category of mankind. Sinners. Paul makes that crystal clear in the next verse by appealing to a truth that both he and Peter already knew very well. His statement in verse 16 is one of the most concise statements Declarations of the doctrine of justification in the Bible. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, even we, Peter, you and me, you and I, have believed in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. No flesh. (laughs) Doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. Nobody is going to be made righteous in the eyes of God by law-keeping. He can't be any more emphatic than he is here. And there is no category of people on earth who are intrinsically righteous in spite of what the Jews like to think. Now, what's the one and only thing in that verse that makes Peter or Paul or anyone else justified, righteous in the eyes of God? Faith. We have believed in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ. Everything else in the verse is a negative. What you can't do to be righteous. This is the only thing that can be done for men to be righteous. But how is it possible, how can it be that keeping the law, the law that came from God to man, not make a man righteous in the eyes of God? After all, the law that was given to Israel through Moses didn't come from Moses, it came from God. Chapter 3 is going to address that question head on. But since Paul makes the point right here that a man is not justified by works of the law, 
we need to lay at least a little groundwork to make sure that we're tracking with him. We understand what he's getting at. The law, listen to me carefully on this. The law of Moses reveals to us in very practical terms how people who share God's character act. I'll say that again. The law reveals to us in practical terms how people who share God's character act. How they live. God is perfectly holy and righteous. And we're not. And that's the biggest problem any human being will ever have. Because God demands that we be holy and righteous just as He is. Leviticus 19.2 You are to be holy for I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. Matthew 5.48 In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Therefore you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And this, the topic that He's addressing is what kind of righteousness passes muster with God. His. God demands holiness and righteousness of all men. All men. That doesn't mean being pious like a monk living in a monastery, uh, depriving himself of the luxuries of life. It means holy and righteous in the trenches, in how we respond to God, and how we treat other people every day. Just read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7. through You'll see what I'm talking about. God demands that we live this way, the way His law instructs us to live. Indeed, that we comply with every letter of it and every stroke of every letter of it. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 5. But here's the part that turns our logic completely on its head. God gave the law to Israel and to the rest of us not to show us how to be righteous. He gave us the law to show Israel and all the rest of us that we are not righteous. The law reveals to us how people who share God's character live so that we will know we do not share His character. So that we will know that we need a Savior. And what makes... Jesus Christ uniquely qualified to be that one and only Savior of men is because Jesus is the only man who has ever lived who actually shares God's character. He's the perfect law keeper. And you know what? He's the only law keeper. Romans 3 verses 19 to 24 says, Now we know, we know, that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who were under the law To accomplish what? That every mouth may be closed and every man accountable to God. The law isn't supposed to give us something we can use to pat ourselves on the back. It's supposed to close our mouths and make us stand before God saying, I've got nothing. I've got nothing. Because by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. That's what Paul says right here in Galatians 2.16. He says at the last part of that verse, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. For through the law, Romans 3, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. 
Romans 3 goes on, it says, but now apart from the law, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, Moses and the prophets, Moses through whom the law was given, and all the prophets after him, they were pointing to Christ. Through the law, they were pointing to Christ. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified how? As a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. What righteousness is this talking about? There's only one. God's righteousness. Received how? Only through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. If you haven't gotten this yet, I hope that you do today. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone as the one who makes you righteous in the eyes of God, you are 100% justified. You are declared by God to be righteous in His eyes. You're there. Because He covers you with the righteousness of Christ. It's a gift. Now, in that passage in Romans 3, you've got all three parts of God's miraculous way of justification. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's what Paul is saying here in Galatians 2.16. By the way, much of Galatians is kind of a distillation of what you find in Romans at many points. Paul went to great pains to make sure that Peter and Barnabas and the Jews in Antioch and the Jews and Gentiles throughout the Roman Empire and we sitting here today would understand what it is that law-keeping actually does and what it can never do. What it does is it exposes us as sinners. (laughs) And what it can never do is make us righteous. These are gospel issues. They explain why we need a Savior. They explain why Jesus is the only one who can possibly be that Savior. And that means you need to know these things. You don't just need to hear them and agree with them. You need to know them. You should be able to find them in the Bible and you should be able to explain them to other people from the Bible. Because that's why you're still here living and breathing after you got saved. Is for God to use you to expand His kingdom. You need to know these things. That's not a guilt trip. That is a wonderful assignment. That's a wonderful assignment. Alright, so in verses 15 and 16, Paul has declared how the righteous becomes a trans, uh, how a transgressor becomes righteous. Now in verses 17 and 18, He's going to tell us how one who has become righteous through faith in Jesus Christ becomes a transgressor. What happens when a believer who has been justified tries to turn back to law-keeping? This is the very sin for which Paul is presently rebuking Peter. It is the sin of attempting to join together to remarry what God has divorced. Now, it would be easy to miss the importance of verses 17 and 18 because there's a very well-known verse just before it and there's a very well-known verse two verses later. But I believe these two verses are the key to the whole passage. 
Because this passage isn't a rebuke against unbelieving Jews. This passage is a rebuke against the apostle Peter and those who were following him in his sin. In these two verses, Paul changes the subject from we to I. And as he makes that transition, he's presenting a hinge between what he's been saying and what he's about to say. Here's that hinge. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Right at the outset of verse 17, it's clear that there's something seriously out of whack. (laughs) Because Paul says, if while seeking to be justified in Christ. But you see, there's no seeking to being justified. Romans 3, verse 11, Paul said, there is none who seeks for God, not even one. We don't gain a righteous standing in the eyes of God by trying to be righteous. We become righteous by abandoning every effort to find any righteousness in ourselves and trusting, believing only in God's gift of His righteousness bought for us 100% by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The phrase, may it never be, at the end of verse 17 is the very strongest and most emphatic negative that Paul has in his bag of verbal tools. He loves to use that phrase to really get his reader's attention when he's making a critically important point and distinction. When you put verses 17 and 18 together with the two preceding verses, you'll see Paul is saying in effect, Peter, you and me, we, we trusted Jesus Christ. We abandoned law-keeping as a means to be righteous in the eyes of God. And we embraced faith in Jesus Christ as the one and only way to be righteous. We abandoned law-keeping. We embraced Christ-trusting. That's what we both did. And the only reason that happened, the only reason that happened was because of God's gracious and miraculous work in each of our hearts. Having thus been declared righteous before God by grace through faith in Jesus, if we now try to go back to law-keeping, we are sinning grievously against our Savior. Does that make Jesus a participant in our sin? May it never be. If I in any way try to go back to law-keeping, what that does is it makes me a transgressor, not Christ. It doesn't prove the gospel of grace to be flawed. It proves me to be a violator of the grace of the gospel. Think of two possible bridges between us and God. One is law-keeping. One bridge is law-keeping. The other bridge is Christ-trusting. Law-keeping is the bridge that we have tried to build. It's our pathetic little bridge made entirely out of the things that we do for God. And it's only partially constructed. In fact, it's just barely underway because the chasm that it's attempting to, to bridge is impossibly large. Christ trusting, on the other hand, is the bridge that God built. 
And it's made entirely out of what God did for us at the cross when Jesus died in our place. God took me off of man's bridge, my bridge, and He put me on His bridge, and then He escorted me across it. From the perspective of my standing in the eyes of God, I've gone all the way up. It's done. I'm in the presence of God, seated at the right hand of the Father with Christ. I've died and my life is hidden with Christ in God. That's justification. And it's done for those who have trusted in Christ. From the perspective of my state, my actual behavior day by day, God's still bringing me across, making me more like Christ by His doing. That's sanctification and it's ongoing, but both are the work of God and they both proceed exactly the same way. By faith. When God put me on His bridge, I, in effect, destroyed that other bridge. Law-keeping as a way to become righteous ceased to exist for me. The second I set foot by God's doing on the bridge He made, faith in Jesus Christ became everything. Law-keeping became nothing. Now let's say I decide one day that I want to rebuild that other bridge. Law-keeping. Then I'll have two ways to be righteous. I'll get to combine God's work with mine. Won't that be better? May it never be. If I try to rebuild that other bridge as a means to be righteous in the eyes of God in any way, even a couple of planks of it, I have to come all the way back down. I have to go the wrong way. I have to go away from God and from the grace of God. And I have to go away from real righteousness to return to fake righteousness. And that whole endeavor would be the worst insult I could ever make against the God who gave His own Son to purchase me for Himself. It would cancel out and nullify the grace that built that true bridge and brought me across it. I can't go back. I can't have it both ways. And if I try to do so, that makes me a transgressor of grace. I'm already a transgressor of the law, along with all the rest of you. That makes me a transgressor of grace. And beloved, if I nullify the grace by which alone I am actually made righteous, what do I have left? We cannot join together two things that God has torn apart. It won't happen. And what's really astounding, and Paul points it out here, is that every time we try to add law-keeping to Christ trusting as the way to be righteous, we always find a way to implicate Christ in that denial of grace. We kick into legalistic mode. We call another believer to hop onto our little crummy bridge. And we... And when we do, we also try to make the case that we're speaking for Jesus. We say, in effect, you need to listen to me, brother. This is the way to please God. Do this. Don't do that. Then you'll be really righteous. 
Forget about drinking anything with alcohol in it. Alcohol is way too easy to abuse. Never mind that you could say the same thing about food and sex. If you really love Jesus, this is what you'll do. You'll stop eating all that beef and take better care of the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's what godly people do. And oh, I've got some excellent products to help you take care of that temple. (laughs) Never mind that vision in Acts 10 where God told Peter, showed Peter that no food was unclean. If you're really walking with Jesus, you'll read your Bible at least 30 minutes a day. And it'll always be in the morning. It'll always be the first thing you do. You know, the whole first fruits deal. It can't be in the evening, certainly not at bedtime. (laughs) Never mind that David, the king of the night people, said that he remembered God when he was in his bed and meditated on Him in the night watches. Psalm 63. Stop making excuses. Jesus did it in the morning. So do that and you'll be good to go. We love to convince others that Jesus is on that miserable, burdensome little bridge with us. But in spite of our best efforts, Paul says we will never succeed in connecting Christ with that approach to righteousness in any way. We will never succeed in implicating our Savior in the heresy that mixes law with grace. Instead, we will succeed only in one thing, indicting ourselves, proving ourselves to be transgressors, both of God's law and of God's grace. Our attempts to mix law-keeping with Christ-trusting don't change the gospel. They just indict us. All right, that's how the righteous, that's how the transgressor becomes righteous and how the righteous becomes a transgressor. Now let's talk about how the righteous lives righteously. And I said ditto point one. And point one was divorcing law-keeping from Christ-trusting. In verse 19, Paul goes from talking about how we were justified once and for all to how we are being sanctified, how we now live day by day. And he does it all in the first person. There are four things that Paul says are true of himself, personally. The first two already happened. They're past. The latter two are present and ongoing. The first two are prerequisites to the Christian life. Things that had to be true of Paul before he could live as a child of God. The second two explain how Paul lives as a child of God. The prerequisites are, I died to the law that I might live to God and I have been crucified with Christ. To live the Christian life, you and I, like Paul, must first die to the law and we must be crucified with Christ. (laughs) Now when we hear that, we immediately think, okay, how do I do that? How do I replace that old law with the new law? If I can't do the 613 things commanded in the law of Moses, at least give me four or five things that I can do so I will die to the law and be crucified with Christ. Then I can start living a life that satisfies God. He's really hard to please. But that's not how this works. 
If you're a child of God, you already died to the law. (laughs) And you were already crucified with Christ. And God is the one who made both those things happen. What does it mean that I died to the law? It means that 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 other bridge no longer exists to me. It means that law-keeping was never a way to be righteous and that that approach to righteousness no longer has anything to do with me nor I with it. And that transformation was all God's doing. And He gives us a hint here about how He did that. How He made us to die to the law. Paul says He died to the law through the law. How do you die to the law through the law? That goes back to what we saw earlier. God gave the law of Moses to mankind to show us how people who share God's character live so we would know we don't share God's character. God gave us the law to humble us, not to give us a reason to break our arms patting ourselves on the back. He gave us the law to break us of law-keeping. Isn't that a beautiful irony? He gave us the perfect law to break us of law-keeping. And when He brings a person to Christ trusting as the only, the one and only way of righteousness, that is the death of law-keeping for that person. And that's God's work, not ours. The prerequisite for the life of righteousness works exactly uh, the, the life of righteousness is it works exactly the same way as the way the way that we become alive. Now Paul says, I'll come back to that. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Now if, if ever there was a loaded statement, that's it. We'll get into that declaration more deeply next time. Um, I need to tell you your bulletin is wrong. I'm gonna, next time, I'm gonna come back and spend one message on verse 20. We're gonna talk about verse 20 today in context, but we're gonna come back and look at it again. I bounced around over that and then settled on, on that, that uh, approach. The essential point Paul is making here is he not only died to the law, he died. As Paul is writing these words, the man that he used to be is already dead. That's what he talked about in chapter 1. That man, that murderer of Christians, died with Jesus Christ on the cross that we were talking about this morning in our worship. Just as surely as Paul was born in the sin of Adam, Paul was crucified in the death of Christ. So was Peter. So was I. So were you if you belong to Christ. If that blows a few gaskets in your mind, welcome to the club. (laughs) Meditate on it. Spend a lot of time thinking about it. Considering it. Mulling over it. Meditating. Marveling at it. And praising God for it. But don't expect to get to the bottom of it. (laughs) You won't. But know this, beloved. When God brought you to faith in Jesus Christ, you not only died to the law, you died. 
And the one and only life that you now have, the one and only life that you now have is the life that is hidden with Christ in God. Your very life is your union with Christ. Christ in you and you in Christ. That's the sum total of everything about you that constitutes life. It's relationship with Christ. John 17, 3, Jesus said, This is eternal life, that they may know thee, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. That's it. That's life. Your life is is identity with Christ. Identification with Christ. If you want a good analogy for that, I can't help you. There's nothing else like it in the universe except the Trinity, and I can't help you with that either. Those are the prerequisites for living the Christian life. You must die to the law, and you must die. You must be crucified with Christ. And God does both of those, so it's not for you to do. But how do you actually live it? Verse 20 of Galatians 2 is one of those verses that you just never get to the end of. <laughs> John Piper says this verse is as close as he gets to a life verse because it is so foundational for understanding how the life of the believer actually works. How we live right now as God's redeemed. I want us to see this great verse clearly in its context and then we'll talk about it in much more detail next week. This is one of a handful of verses that I memorized as a young believer without even trying. God just just singed this into my memory. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Christ lives in me. Let me try that again. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live only one way. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. In His rebuke against Peter that started in verse 11, Peter has gone from you to we to I. And he ends the rebuke not by talking about Peter, but by talking about himself. He's presenting what is true of himself as a reminder to Peter and to us of what is true of every believer. And the only reason he mentions himself is to point all of our attention back to Jesus Christ alone. The one who is the object of Paul's faith, the lover of Paul's soul, and the author of Paul's life. He just said, through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God. Now he's going to tell us how I live to God. We always want to know how things work. A lot of times God doesn't tell us. (laughs) He tells us the what, but not the how. Here he tells us the how. Here's how you live the Christian life. I want you to read this out loud with me. The life which I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. One more time. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. Beloved, I hope you can say that with a big smile on your face because that's marvelous. 
The life of the believer is a life of faith, not a life of law-keeping. It's the life of faith in the one who loved you, who died for you, of trusting the one in whom you died, the one in whom you have been made alive, the one who now lives seated at the right hand of the Father, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named both in this age and in the age to come. Your life is a life of faith in Him. And if you think that's too simplistic to be practical or useful, you are as wrong as wrong can be. There is nothing more practical than that reality. If godly living is all about trusting the One who saved me, then it's not about trusting me or anyone or anything else in any respect. As my dear wife pointed out when we were talking about this, the difference this makes in how we live isn't quantitative, it's qualitative. Let me explain that. God's Word contains a whole bunch of instructions and commands that come from God, not from men, in both Testaments. And God intends that we are to be doers of the Word, not hearers alone. But listen, the believer who loves to do the things that delight God is going to do many of the same things as the believer who finds it burdensome and stifling to do them. The difference is the heart of faith. Why do you put money in the offering plate? I love this. Al said this this morning and it was like he took it right out of this message. Why do you put money in the offering plate? So you won't feel bad about yourself? Or because you're delighted with God? Is it because you're afraid that if you don't put money and you don't put enough money in the plate, God's not going to take care of you when the going gets tough financially for you and your family? Or is it because you believe that God has your well-being firmly in hand so you can give cheerfully, even lavishly, to support the advancement of the Gospel without any fear at all? Why do you pray? Do you pray to convince God to take care of you? Or do you pray because you know that He takes care of you? You believe His promises. And you are thankfully acknowledging your utter dependence on Him for your very breath for everything. Why do you put up with an unreasonable boss at work? Is it because you're scared to death of losing your job? Or is it because you want to take advantage of a God-given opportunity to show your boss the forgiveness and patience and forbearance that Christ shows you every single day? What determines the kinds of ministries that you're willing to take on? Is it your fear of your own limitations? Or is it your faith in the sufficiency of Christ working in you and through you. Think about and regularly talk to God about how a life defined by trust in the One who loved you and gave Himself up for you impacts what you do and how you do it every day of your life. A life that is defined by faith in Jesus Christ is a life filled with prayerful dependence on Jesus Christ. 
Christ in you is both the hope of glory and your entire source for living well and joyfully. Verse 21 is Paul's conclusion. And he concludes with this statement. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. This is Paul's synopsis of everything that he's been saying to Peter. If righteousness comes through law-keeping, then it does not come through grace, and that means Christ's death was wasted. But it was not. And the only way that Peter or Paul or any other person comes to have life is by trusting in the one who loved us and delivered himself up for us. And that is exactly the same way that we live the life that he has given to us. Exactly the same way. Instead of struggling to be good law keepers and denying the grace of God in the process, may we be so consumed with knowing and trusting the One who saved us that we find ourselves constantly delighted to do the things that delight Him. Life in this cursed world for a child of God is a battlefield every day. Temptations surround us and the fallout of our sin and everyone else's is everywhere. It's not easy. It is not supposed to be easy. But it is a life filled with certainty of outcome and clarity of purpose. It is filled with power, with joy, with usefulness. But above all, it is filled with Christ. He is our all in all. It is a life that drives us to our knees in utter dependence on the One who never disappoints. It is the life lived by faith in the One who loved us and delivered Himself up for us. Dear Father, these are revolutionary things that You have set before us this morning. They turn our way of thinking upside down. Father, impress these things on our heart. Make us, make us so sold out on the beauty, the marvel, the miracle of the life of faith that You have given to us that we just don't even think about going back to that burden of law-keeping, back to deeds that are just filthy rags in Your Son. Lord, it is You who makes us fit to stand in Your presence. It is You who gives us life, and it is Jesus Christ who is life to us. We lift up His name, and we praise His name. Amen.